Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. We see the syphilitic shrinking obelisk. The white man's wilting dick. of CD game show trolls The smiling lie of the televised Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 65. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Hi, I'm George Takei. You know me as Helmsman Sulu on Star Trek. When I'm not busy going Warp Factor 8, I like to beam down to Lee's Comics and spend a lazy afternoon reading comics classics from Marvel to DC, from Dark Horse to Fantagraphics, and everything in between. So please, spend some time here at Lee's Comics and spend your hard-earned cash. <laughs> Fun Ideas Podcast is made possible by listeners like you and from Lee's Comics of California, selling you what your mother threw out since 1982, online at leescomics.com. Headquartered, the timeline of the Monkey's solo years is out. Get it in paperback or hardback, and soon as an ebook on bearmannermedia.com or at Amazon. My co-author, Michael A. Ventrella, will be attending Beetlefest and selling and signing copies of it and our previous monkey book there. Uh, he will be attending at the end of March. I'm doing the final edits for the TTV scrapbook, and I will be turning it in soon. I just got the assignment to do articles for Back Issue Magazine on Hee Haw and on Sid and Marty Croft. Uh, the Warren Kremer book proof is back, and now we're doing final, final edits. I'm still working on my own Light Up Your Life travel agency, and of course, the Mad Book, and a possible new Disney book. Today's guest is a singer with four albums to his credit, but more importantly, he opened and has run his own comic book store since 1976. Here he is, Joe Ferrara. So on the phone today, I have Joe Ferrara. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well, Mark. How are you today? I am doing well, too. Um and as I usually start out, I always ask the question, tell me a little bit about yourself, and in your case, how you got into both running a long and admired and legendary comic book store, and also your singing and music career, that you yeah. that both go in tandem on and on. Well, um, the, the store wasn't a plan. I, I born and raised in San Jose, went to college there at San Jose State and Santa Clara, back and forth, um, but... The bottom line is, while I was at Santa Clara, I was uh, I, w- I was collecting comics. I loved comics from '71 to '76. I collected comics, but what got me going again was uh, in '70. Uh, I spent the year in the service, then I came back, and my roommate uh, for that summer was Mike Friedrich, 
who uh, wrote many fine comics, started Star Reach Productions, the first company to uh, really represent artists and writers. Uh, Mike had a, a wonderful career. He was the first person at Marvel hired before Carol Kalish to be their liaison to the retail community. He was hmm. the first official representative from the publishers. Now, you know, there's a jillion of them. Yeah. Mike was the first one. So Mike was at the time writing a backup uh, story in Detective. Robin was in college, and Mike was writing that a backup story. He went on to write many other things for DC and Marvel, and created some great characters. So and Mike received the Bill Finger Award uh, this last year at, uh, at San Diego Con. So I'm real cool. happy for him. Cool. But that got my interest in comics. I mean, I, I what it did was it got me collecting. Mm-hmm. And uh, so for the next five years, from 71 to 76, I collected and then um, moved to Santa Cruz um, because that was where my first wife was from originally. She wanted to go home. So I said, yes, dear, and we moved to Santa Cruz. <laughs> and uh, um, I opened the shop. I had nothing to do during the day and um, playing at night, five nights a week and stuff. So um, with my music, which I also started you know, playing clubs in, from San, San Jose up to San Francisco back and forth. In those days, there was a lot of clubs DJs, but um, uh, I, I digress, as Peter David would say. So uh, uh, the bottom line is that um, I opened the shop on a whim, had a partner, and um, had not really intended to open a shop when I moved here, but I had these 6,000 comics in my collection, and it gave me something to do with my days, and um, it was a kind of a sleepy little shop, and then that was November of 76, and then six months later, the good Lord laughed at me and gave us the first Star Wars movie. Yeah. And all, I say all of a sudden I had to open on time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> People were actually waiting to get in. I, what's going on here? I want my cup of coffee and my crossword puzzle, you know? <laughs> um, so slowly but surely, um, as you know, as things progress, Star Wars opened the door for what we now know is the main thrust of pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, without Star Wars, you wouldn't have Twilight, you wouldn't have Harry Potter, you wouldn't have had Lord of the Rings, you wouldn't have had any of, of pop culture right now. It opened the door. So, um, 13 years in the original location, 89 earthquake, uh, kind of threw a monkey wrench and everything. Uh, <laughs> we were one of 45 businesses that moved into eight of these big tent-like pavilions. The community came together on the parking lots behind the damaged buildings after the earthquake. They constructed these large canvas tents with aluminum ribs everybody pitched in and gave us a, a Christmas season so the earthquake was in October and we opened in the tents <clears throat> pardon me oddly enough the day after Thanksgiving which was the same day we opened originally in, in 76 <laughs> so we had 45 businesses we were told we'd be in the tent six months we were the last of the 45 to come out of the tents and it was exactly three years later wow in 92 October, I mean, uh, the day after Thanksgiving in 92, we moved into our current location. Mm-hmm. So we've been here now in town. A total, this is our 44th year in town. Uh, luckily, I've been able to keep my singing going. I play um, Sunday nights at the good old haunt, the Cats and Los Gatos, good old roadside barbecue house. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Friday night, uh, play at the Shadowbrook and Capitol, a very nice upscale restaurant. Mm-hmm. And uh, private gigs, parties, and, um, you know, private <laughs> so uh, both both of my passions are still keeping me going. That's cool. <laughs> um, I just had various questions, and I guess I'll just jump. We never have any real format on this show. It's just you know. Um, Speaking of that, you know what I what I've left out of this is, yes. uh, is my family. My okay. uh, my wife. 
Scotty and I have been married now uh, 33 years this year, mm -hmm. and we have four kids, seven grandkids, and six great-grandkids. Oh, wow. So there's there's a lot going on besides the business. <laughs> my family. We have a lot, lot of fun, a lot, lot going on. So. Mm -hmm. um, so uh just wanted to ask you about the earthquake uh, out of all things that you said <laughs> you know, I never knew it was three years how did you do that and was there a problem with theft or anything like that with not having well, a very secure location I never went to it during those yeah, years so anyway yeah. you know the old saying uh, takes a village uh -huh. well uh, um, the, the communities came together um, and, and, and uh, uh, there's a lot of details there's a few books on the subject of photographs and everything but the basic essence of what happened was uh, the business community. There was three organizations. There was the Chamber of Commerce, the Cultural Council, and the Downtown Association of Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. And uh, somebody knew that these tents existed. They came out of Canada. They got uh, uh, everybody pitched in. The union labor guys donated their time. There's a few pictures on our Atlantis website. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, there's a couple of books, like I say, on the project. But um, basically... We started out with eight uh, big tents, and one of them housed Bookshop Santa Cruz, if you can believe it, and one of them housed Santa Cruz Hardware. Mm. And to the question about security, first alarm came in. Uh, they built cyclone fences around uh, the parking lots. The first summer, uh, first uh, Christmas that we had, uh, there was no heat, and you could actually see your breath in the air. <laughs> but honestly, there were busloads of people who came to support the downtown. They wanted to make sure the merchants uh, were going to make it. Mm -hmm. It was uh, it was incredible. It was a real lesson in people coming together. Uh, you hear a lot about being part of the community and the average person, you know, wanting to have a good life and a, and a good home to live in and everything. And, uh, nothing like it. I'm sure this happened uh, during Katrina. I'm sure this happened mm -hmm. Whenever there was a natural disaster, mm -hmm. and you see people in the communities coming together to help each other out, mm. and uh, that's that's what it was. There were it was stressful times. There were aftershocks, and yeah. uh, uh, some people lost everything. Some people extended their credit to the point where, after the tents were coming down, as buildings were being rebuilt, uh, some of them had used up all their credit and couldn't qualify to get into anything new. So. <laughs> I always say it was business as usual, but under a microscope, because, <laughs> you know, if you think about your average town, you walk down the street, and it's changed since you first walked down that street, and you don't notice it, because it's usually done gradually. Mm -hmm. um, this was done all at once. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, um, if you took a snapshot of what Main Street looked like, um, you know, 20 years ago, and you look at it now in any town, you're going to see changes. Mm -hmm. But it's you know it's it's the normal uh, business. But it, when it's under a microscope, I, I clearly remember that the news stories in those days were another business in the tents was going out of business, was mm -hmm. closing, and yet there were uh, three or four businesses that started in those tents and went on to have you know great uh, long lives here in town. But they never covered uh, a new business opening. They always wanted to talk about the businesses that were closing which was frustrating but <laughs> the bottom line was it was a community effort mm -hmm. um, there was uh, there was uh, it was a challenge as as, uh, as if, if you're in a tent with four other businesses or six other businesses and one of you has a problem you all have the problem mm. and uh, they finally 
installed some kind of a heater system, but it was in the center of the uh, tent. So the people that were at the front where the doors were froze and the people in the middle were boiling and people kept running over and adjusting the thermostats. <laughs> I had to have a meeting for that, you know, like, okay, how are we going to solve this problem, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, you'll learn to work with people. Yeah. Uh, it's very tough when, when, uh, when something like that happens. And then, <coughs> pardon me, we, um, we moved out of the tents, as I say, the last person. They were taking the other tents down and storing the parts in our tent mm -hmm. as, uh, as that was happening. But, uh, you know, the, uh, the original store still lives on in the movies. We were in the, the Lost Boys movie. Right, you know, that was that. a pretty special <clears throat> accident. Because at the time, if you've ever been anywhere where you can observe a movie being made, you haven't got a clue because you're watching the same scene shot over and over. Right. <laughs> and uh, it's out of context. And all I can say is when we watched the the film being shot in our store, we kept thinking, what did we get ourselves into? Now, how did that how did that come about? I mean, did they come you, to you, or did you approach somebody else? Or um, My partner at the time, Jim Oshbacher, mm -hmm. who unfortunately uh, passed a year ago. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim... Um, Jim was married to Lisa Jensen, who is still the uh, movie critic for The Good Times, the local entertainment paper ah. here in town. Mm -hmm. And um, through her contacts, one of her friends is a woman who is a casting director. When they come to town in any, many of these towns, they need extras, they need uh, you know, site location. And the Visitors Council in Santa Cruz has a specific um, a department to deal with um, Hollywood the movies and all that so um, when they when they came to town on looking for locations they knew that one of the things they were going to need was a comic store and if there wasn't one they were going to have to build one <laughs> and um, so the combination of uh, Lisa knew the woman who was the casting director locally on the job and she said oh yeah we have a comic store and what they, what they loved about the store in those days it was um, originally it was an old family grocery store like a corner market right. so it had the long wooden floors and <laughs> high ceilings and it had a lot of room for them to dolly their cameras and all that so that's why they loved the location it was um, a minimum outlay for them um, but one thing that I, I always <laughs> love telling people is once they started shooting and they got everything ready they had a guy whose job it was to go around and with a spray can of, of dirt spray dirt and dust on everything because the idea was that the parents were burned out hippies and so the Lost Boys, their sons were running uh, the two Frog Brothers were running the store and of mm -hmm. course two, two kids are not going to keep the place clean you know. so we had to clean the place three weekends in a row that they shot in the store and we had to clean the place all three weekends <laughs> after the guy got done spraying dirt but that's how we got involved with the, sh uh, the thing out of, of all things I call it now the gift that keeps on giving we had, a, we had no idea it would be a cult classic right you know? So uh, we just, uh, this uh, last December, we received, um, there's a company that's authorized by Warner Brothers to do movie reps, replications, and so we actually have now um, uh, in the store for sale copies of the actual Vampires Everywhere movie prop. We've had it for 32 years. <laughs> People have come from all over to see it and get their picture taken with it, but now we can actually sell them a copy of the, uh, the replica. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. Wow. <laughs> Now, when they shot, was it, you said three weekends, was it all day, or was it just a few uh, hours, or? Uh, this is why the, the, the magic of the movies and why things cost. Uh, you would think that they would shoot 
the scenes. There's about three different times that there's scenes in the comic story right. movie. Right. Well, uh, you'd think they would shoot what they need and go. Well, the way that the, their schedule was, the bonfire scenes on the beach at the boardwalk, right. they shot those at night, Monday through Friday. <laughs> and they couldn't shoot there on Saturday because the boardwalk was open later. And by the time they got their setup, they'd lose the light. It, it wasn't practical. <laughs> so they set up their shooting schedule so that they shot on the beach Monday through Friday. And on Friday, they had a second crew come and build the fake wall out in front of our store. We were on the street. Many people still come to town looking for the store on the boardwalk, and it never was on the <laughs> but, uh, I guess I never thought of that because I knew yeah. where the real shop was. But yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but they they put a fake wall uh, in the along the gutter so that you know it, it looked like it. And then they only shot from uh, the lower parts. So the, they built on Friday. They shot on Saturday. And then they tore that down on Sunday, and they did that three weekends in a row. Wow. Um, because they had to do... One day of shooting was totally lost. They, they I don't know why it didn't make it in the film. Um, and the basic story was somebody was stealing, and Corey uh, Feldman grabs a uh, slingshot from behind the counter and uh, blows the kid's ear, earlobe off uh, mm. with the slingshot. Mm -hmm. So whether that effect didn't work or whether they thought it was too gruesome, mm. uh, a whole day's worth of shooting never made it into the movie. Mm. So, And uh, I'm in the background in one scene where uh, Corey Haim walks into the store after Grandpa says, that's as close to town as I want to get, and he gets out of the car. The next scene shows Corey Haim walking in the store, and I'm in the background playing the pinball machine and as an extra you're not supposed to say anything and I <laughs> pretended the machine had screwed me and I went ah did you see that in a very soft voice and if you crank the volume to eight you can hear me say my unauthorized line in the official movie <laughs> I'll have to watch yeah. it again I do yeah, have a copy yeah. of the film yes <laughs> oh boy there you go <laughs> so yeah Lost Boys continues to bring in people I mean all over the world not just all over the country wow. you name the country Brazil um, Argentina New Zealand Spain, Portugal, Italy, a lot of Germans, a lot of Australians. It's amazing the following this film. It really is. And we're redoing our website right now to help include a gallery of many of the photos we've taken with these folks when they come to the store. Mm -hmm. So Now, do they get disappointed when they find out you're not in the exact same location? <laughs> no, actually, they don't. They're just... See, one of the things they posted online, the Visitor's Bureau here in town has posted a Lost Boys tour map. Uh -huh. And you can, so a lot of these folks have gone online and they know ahead of time the points of interest. The one nice thing is um, we're the only place they can go to and actually talk to somebody about the film hmm. or even who was in the film. None of the, all the other places are just physical locations. Right. You know, including the boardwalk. They see the merry-go-round and all that kind of stuff. It's cool. But they come here and we can talk to them and show them some photos, tell them some stories, what was happening while the shooting was going on, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. to tag on the other question I had about the earthquake um, when you moved into the present location was it as it is now or did you was it just kind of bare bones and you had to paint all those features and create all those sets and everything that you have the okay. Star Trek set what, what we received um, 
when we when we signed the lease mm-hmm. is what they call shell construction. The city was in the process while we were in the tent of building a parking structure, and they were going to have retail out front, mixed use building. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the deal is that we were given what they call the shell construction: a concrete floor, four exterior walls, and a roof. Mm-hmm. And everything else that you see in here, including from putting the tiles on the floors, running the electric, I hired a contractor, we had to choose the colors, we had to choose everything you see was uh, was our uh, design. Uh, the, the first, when we first moved in, we were only in our main room um, in uh, 92. And then in 94, the room adjacent to us became available. So that's when we were able to move in there. And my first thought was to decorate it with the black ceiling and models of ships and stars hanging. So the idea was that it was outer space, but uh, the, the heat loss, the energy efficiency was so great that they wouldn't let us do that. So <laughs> because I had to go to a regular drop ceiling, I'm, I'm looking at this thing, I go, what's going? and then all of a sudden it popped in my head that we were inside the ship instead of outside the ship. So we had the um, some of our talented customers or you know, uh, artists and the um, the whole design on the back wall that looks like we're on the engineering deck was done uh, with airbrushing and uh, Starlog sent us a slide, a production slide from Next Gen and the company some, well there was a company in those days in Santa Clara that a big computer, they dealt with um, a lot of big uh, uh, organizations like the NFL, and, you know when you see a beer delivery truck and it's got a guy skiing on the side of a mountain on it you know this massive <laughs> thing and all that is is a massive sticker that's been generated out of a computer and, and adhered to, to the surface of the truck and um, we have a uh, enterprise outside a window in our top room and, and a picture of the earth that was taken by one of the astronauts <laughs> and both of those are just massive stickers that were blown up on this computer and peeled off and stuck on the wall Wow! <laughs> and they're, they're still there I know it's pretty cool and when you uh, George Sakai was here one day um and uh, he looked at it and he goes, that's how we do it in the movies. You know, we pull the camera with forced perspective. And if you take a picture of our wall, it looks like that stupid ship is hanging right out there. It really is amazing. <laughs> you know? yeah. So a little creativity uh, to add a little excitement to the place, a little fun. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, um, uh, back in uh, 20, I forget how many years it's been now, 10 years or longer, um, Bob Wilkins, who used to do creature features here in town, became mm-hmm. a friend of ours over the years. And uh, when he passed, uh, his agent came to me, Tom, and he said, you know, when Bob did his children's show for three years, Captain Cosmic, um, his sidekick was this robot called 2T2. Right. <laughs> and uh, a 2T2 was actually built in 1965. Wow. In the high school robotics class, which I didn't know existed in 1965, <laughs> somewhere in, in, in the Sacramento area. And um, Bob's cameraman, a guy named Chuck, uh, owned 2T2 because he bought it from the uh, high school when the kids were done with it. Huh. And um, and uh, so Bob knew that Chuck had this thing, and he knew that uh, because the Star Wars robots were popular. So um, shortly after Star Wars opened, Bob called him and he said, I'm going to do this show and I want that robot on my show. So mm. that's how 2T2 ended up uh, 
um, as Captain Cosmic's sidekick. Wow, I never and, knew. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I never knew that. I thought right. K- KTVU built it or something. Is just no, a prop. <laughs> Chuck told me that he bought two T two for sixty five dollars <laughs> and negotiated with Channel Two that for the three years that the robot was on the show, he got sixty five dollars a year. Licensing fee, <laughs> so he tripled his money, <laughs> and then when the show was over, it went back to him, and um, it stayed in his garage all those years. And then when Bob passed, uh, his agent Tom came to me and said, "You know, uh, this thing should be where people could enjoy it." And mm-hmm. he said, "Nobody in San Francisco wanted the robot." Wow. <laughs> I know. I said, "Well, okay, we got a spot for him." So he's. <laughs> We had official, it's, it's on our website too, the video where we officially uh, changed his workstation from uh, Starship, Captain Cosmic was on, to the USS Atlantis, <laughs> and, um, and uh, had the ceremony and the whole bit, it was a lot of fun, and uh, Bob was, uh, Bob's son was here uh, to, uh, to to take care of the installation and all that, it was really just a lot of fun, so now we're the home of 2T2, people come by and, you know, uh, and a lot of people don't realize this, but in those days before cable, Ted Turner started something he called a super station. Mm-hmm. And there were four stations that were nationwide, and one was out of Chicago, and uh, one was out of, uh, I'm trying to remember, but Channel 2 out of San Francisco was one of those stations. Yeah, I know. So when, <laughs> when Bob was on uh, uh, every day at 5 o'clock, he went nationwide. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we used to send him every week a little package uh, with some of the new comics that came in that week and he would hold it up and say uh, here are the comics that you can find in your local comic store courtesy of Atlantis Fantasy I remember and that yeah <laughs> people thought for years that he had a stake in the store piece of the action he never did did he ever um, visit the store did oh yeah oh, we okay. had him for our first anniversary mm-hmm. and then 29 years later one of the last appearances he made um was here at the store. Very good. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, and we have some photos of that too, and everything. It, it was quite a day. Mm. Um, it, it, um, you know, if you can't have fun here, it's going to be a long day. Right. You know, and uh, uh, any opportunity we have to to do that, and all these things just kind of, you know, I never set out to do any of this stuff. <laughs> I never set out to say I'm going to become a friend of Bob Wilkins, or I'm going to get to do this, or I'm going to. that you take it to the next level you could just have the robot there and that's the end of it but you actually continue on with your weekly or I don't know oh. monthly newsletters and you put a little secret code for 2T2 that, that's true now uh, uh, Captain Cosmic had a secret decoder card when right. I was a kid I had the decoder ring from Captain Midnight just like Ralphie did in the Christmas story you know and uh, <laughs> Bob, Bob had a secret decoder card and if you were a member of the you know uh the club, you got the card and you can decode the secret message. Right. You can win a prize or send all that stuff. Well, we, we replicated that decoder card mm-hmm. and uh, we uh, we have a weekly email and we send out a message from 2T2 mm-hmm. and uh, I always ask people, what do you think my first message was when, when I had to come up with a message for the first time? <laughs> and, uh, go ahead. Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> Very good. It's, it, it was drink Ovaltine. Okay. Very good. <laughs> 
and say, dude, I had to explain this to my kid. <laughs> <laughs> I love that scene. And, you know, my dad is of the age, and he goes, yep, that was the thing. He yeah. said the only difference, it wasn't Little Orphan Annie when he was a kid. It was Captain Midnight. But it's, right, he it did Captain the exact Midnight. same thing, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I got just as pissed as Ralphie did. Yeah. When, I, when I saw the movie the first time, I went, what, was somebody in the kitchen watching me while this happened? Because this is exactly what happened, you know. <laughs> just incredible um, but it, well, it makes for great stories doesn't yes, it yes you know? and, uh, yeah some guys come in and they scream is that the real 2T2 yes that's the real 2T2 you know so um, it's great because uh, you, you, you can see in their eyes they're, they're, they're reliving their youth again yeah and that's and that's in this world of digital you know this last December retail sales was up 3% but um, online was up 18% Mm-hmm. And we're all we're all facing it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the 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 current young person wants everything in their hand. They don't want to carry anything. They don't want to be bothered. <laughs> but they want to be unencumbered, and their time is their most important asset. And with all of that, I still say, you know, when you leave Disneyland, you know, the next time you come back, it's going to cost you even more money, mm-hmm. and you can't wait to come back. <laughs> so, what does that say? You know, when people make up their mind that they're going to go do this, money isn't real to them. That whatever it takes, they're going to do it until they get home and see their credit card. Bill. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you, you know, we all need, and especially in this world uh, today that we're living in, there's a lot to be concerned about the younger generation. Is there going to be a planet for them when they're raising their kids? And uh, what the heck's going on with all this stuff? You know, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of reasons for young people who, facing massive loans or or economic hardship uh, or just, you know, being worried about the economy of the, of the planet, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, they need a break from all of this stuff. The average person cannot afford to take a vacation every week or, you know, go to Disneyland or Pixar or wherever they, however they choose to spend their downtime. Mm-hmm. But they really need a break. So if they can come into a comic shop and just for whatever time that they choose to spend here, Mm-hmm. You know, real time doesn't exist anymore. The real world is not existing anymore for whatever time they choose to spend with us. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the only way retail is going to survive. There's um, there's the onslaught of so many different things that are coming, but the experience. I mean, that's what got us through the earthquake. That's what gets people through other tragedies, floods, and, and look at these poor folks, these tornadoes. Now. Yeah, yeah. This one town that's been rebuilt three times. Oh, three times. Yeah, yeah. What does that tell you? They want to be there. Yes. It's their community. <laughs> you know? So those of us who don't understand the answer, what is wrong with you people? Rebuilding <laughs> in the same place. And I understand it totally. This is our identity and we're yeah. not going to lose it. Well, I didn't ask this earlier, but you know, when, when the earthquake happened, did you consider at the time throwing in the towel and just saying, I'm done with this? The earthquake hit um, at, I don't know, what it was, eight, five, whatever it was, five or whatever it was. Yeah, it was like five or and, um, yeah. and within uh, ten minutes of it, uh, of it um, uh, happening, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I was immediately in my car, drove home to check out my house, and when it was fine, I came back. Jim went to his house, checked everything out, and then we started cleaning up. And uh, the next day, we were open for business and somebody actually walked in and said wow it's nice to see something normal wow <laughs> yeah because i was in san i was in san francisco at that time so that's why i never i missed the tent i missed all that stuff i didn't go until you had the the bigger new location and so our, our current, yeah, our current yeah. 
the new store, which we now have been in for 28 years. <laughs> yeah, but I think I avoided Santa Cruz because I knew there was a lot of damage down there. I mean, well, and, and it was hard to get here. Yeah, the roads were. Yeah, you know, it yeah. was. It was an it was amazing time that we got through it. You mm-hmm. know, and uh, you know, um, because of the new store, uh, <coughs> that led to up until then I really hadn't. I stayed close to home, close to the vest. I really didn't get involved in a lot. And um, I forget, I think it was uh, 90, uh, 1978. Uh, it was the first time I went to Comic-Con. Yeah. And then I didn't go again until 1995. Oh, wow. I thought you and, just went uh, every year. I didn't know that. <laughs> I know, I know. I didn't go until 95. But at that point, we had done the new store, and we were nominated for the Eisner. And hmm. um, that's the year Joe Field won uh, with Flying Colors. Mm-hmm. But... Um, when uh, when I got there, um, when I turned around. Somebody saw me, and he goes, "Joe Ferrara, what rock did you crawl out from under?" <laughs> you know, I hadn't been, and, and I've been to, with the exception of one, I've been to the con every year ever since. And then slowly but surely, got involved with uh, different things. Uh, we won the the Eisner the following year in '96, and then mm-hmm. I was a judge in 98 and I was appalled at the lack of process for how it was being handled and <laughs> so I complained to some people I knew that I thought they could do a better job and they said well write down your suggestions mm-hmm. so I did <laughs> and then I got a phone call and they said okay you do it <laughs> so I volunteered myself I guess <laughs> so for the last 18 years I have not been a judge but I have been the facilitator of the process by which uh, retail stores receive their Eisner. Oh. Um, uh, Will was still alive back in the early days of this, 92 and 93, when this all was, was starting, they, they started the award. And um, over time, as they, uh, uh, Will and I were able to sit down and discuss you know, what he was looking for and what, what kind of things should we reward people for. And it's not necessarily the store that grosses the most money, that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's all the things we talked about, community, and mm-hmm. are they being proactive about spreading the word to non-comic non, uh, civilians, right. non-comic readers, and all that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> um, and over the years, uh, I'm the guy who sits in the room, and every year the panel of judges changes. So you can imagine, over 18 years, I've met some marvelous people from all uh, areas, publishers, distributors, uh, creators, and um, the, the recipients of this award then get to be a judge the following year. So... As we become international, I've made friends with people in Tel Aviv and Australia and New Zealand. Uh, uh, this last year was uh, uh, Buenos Aires, the year before it was Spain. Um, it's amazing um, how many folks from around the world have a passion for these comics and mm-hmm. the, the recognition that they're richly getting for uh, all the hard work that they do uh, from nine to five. Um, but one of my former customers, um, when he was a UC student, was a customer of mine, and then uh, Aton, he's moved up to Oakland, and three years ago, four years ago, he opened a comic shop there called Cape and Cowl. Oh, yeah. And, uh, heard, yeah. and he's done a very good job with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw him um, last year um, at the con, and I said, so, Mr. Businessman, Entrepreneur, <laughs> now that you've had your business for a while, what was your biggest surprise? And he said to me, well, I didn't think I'd be working 15-hour days. <laughs> son, you have a chance to make it. Uh, <laughs> this is not a punch in and punch out kind of thing. When you own a shop, you, yeah. you, you're there. That's it. Right. You know? Now, so. f- 45 years is a long time, um, obviously. Uh, how has it changed for you? I mean, we know how the industry has changed, but how has it changed for you? 
you know, all these years? Well, um, you know, uh, there's a couple of things uh, I would say. The business itself, and then the, the creative aspect, the product that's coming out, uh, it's, it's, it's exploded. You know, the, uh, the creative end of it, uh, there's more diversity in comics than ever. Mm -hmm. um, the subject matter is not, you know, it used to be superheroes, war, love, maybe some funny animals, that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> but uh, they've expanded the content so that a, a graphic novel is now accepted. I remember for years fighting with Rory, the, the fight with, you know, people to get them to look at graphic novels as viable books, not just, you know, stuff intended for kids and all that. Mm -hmm. Charles Brownstein's still fighting that fight with CBLDF and all that in some areas, you know. <laughs>
the kids come in during the holidays with their families that were the same age as mom and dad were when they were first coming yeah. in and guy goes hey do you recognize me i say yeah but the face belongs three feet above the ground not eight feet above the ground come on you know um yeah so how it's changed is uh interesting um business-wise you know how the distribution all that kind of stuff has changed but for me personally what's what stayed the same is the fact that you know people uh still love their comics and they're so far they're still willing to come in for the experience here in the store and we visit and have a great time with them and yeah. talk about anything under the sun except you know sometimes it's comics but sometimes yeah. it's the movies and, uh, <laughs> well, a lot of times it's the movies so there you go now the first time i went in this will tell you how old i am i was okay. i was 10 <laughs> 1977 uh and now i'm 53 so it's like <laughs> well, there you go um one of our uh, local heroes uh is james durbin the kid who was on american idol yeah um he didn't win but he uh, had a great showing for himself and he's a great musician and he uh he told me that when he was 10 and we had bill morrison who at the time was working uh, at Bongo for the Simpsons that James came in and gave Bill a drawing of Bart Simpson that, that James had drawn puking all over his family at the dinner table or something you know? <laughs> and uh, they literally published that in, a, in an issue of the Simpsons comics <laughs> and uh, James says he has that in a safe deposit box wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know so uh, uh, who knew that this 10 year old kid was going to be on American Idol I mean that kind right. of stuff right you know? and uh, my next door neighbor literally in high school and his parents would go out of town and give a party at midnight I'd pull my pants on and go out and say Adam take it in the house people are trying to sleep and it's uh, Adam Scott the uh, the actor who was on Parks and Rec and he's mm. Dirty Little Lies uh, he's had quite a career uh, uh, doing a lot of different things um, uh, and, and he's gotten some he had his own show on, on Fox and all that but he played Amy Poehler's husband Ben in uh, Parks and Rec uh, he's had a good career. He's my next door neighbor. You know, <laughs> everybody's everybody was somebody's next door neighbor. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it just happens to be you know Adam was mine, but right. it's uh, it's one of the joys of having longevity. Yeah. Um, since you've been around a long time, you know, you've had a lot of uh, guests appear and stuff like that. I know I saw Willie Ito there and Scott Shaw. Uh, can you tell me some of the different ones? Because I know I haven't been to all of them. <laughs> Well, um, the very first time we ever had a guest was we were still in the tents. Mm. Um, actually, no, I take it back. In the original store, we did have B. Joe Trimble, who started the fan um, letters that got Star Trek saved the okay. first time around. Mm -hmm. uh, we had her at the store. We had Bob Wilkins originally at the original store. Um, we didn't do a lot of signings. Our very first one was Brent Anderson. Hmm. when he did uh, the graphic novel God Loves Man Kills. So that'll tell you how long that book's been around. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, um, we had a few of those. Um, in the old days, it was harder to network and harder to find people. Hmm. And then um, when we got to the new store, uh, we were part of the Death Mate tour that um, Valiant and Image put together when they were doing that whole thing. Um, <laughs> and that was when we still had only one side of the store. And... Uh, I was working the night before feverishly trying to get everything going and there were guys banging on the door out front and I I just go away. I'm going, Get out of here. I gotta and the next day Joe Casada said to me, That was me banging on your front door <laughs> How did I know he was gonna end up at Marvel doing what he's doing? You know, I wouldn't let Joe Casada in my store, you know. 
He still gives me a bad time. Um, but, uh, yeah, we've had some marvelous people. Dick Ayers, who was a guest. Um, we've had uh, Lois Lane, uh, Noel Neal, the original oh, yeah. Lois Lane, mm -hmm. was here a couple of times. Um, the, the Probably the most successful signing, it was really a last-minute thing. Um, there was a small tour being organized by Marvel. Uh, their rep at the time was a guy named Mike Martin, and he... Uh, uh, one of the stores that was on the tour uh, uh, couldn't do it, so he asked me if uh, if uh, we'd be willing to do it, and I said sure. And it was Fabian Nicieza who was writing X Men at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, basically it was the wedding issue of Scott and Jean. Oh yeah, yeah. X Men Thirty, you know. And uh, we knew Derek Robertson at the time. He was driving, drawing Wolverine, and uh, I had known him from when he was working uh, for Diamond and Distribution. He wasn't even published yet. And look at him now with the boys and everything. But uh, in those <laughs> days, so I said, sure. Well, uh, somehow or other, we decided this was before we had the second room. We were able to rent that room for one day. And we decided we'd have a wedding reception for Scott and Gina. My wife went to Costco and got a sheet cake. And, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, uh, she's at home at 12 o'clock watching the noon news. And we had done our press releases and stuff. And the lead story was that there was a uh, wedding reception for the X-Men uh, at Atlantis and the first thing Dottie said was oh my god I didn't get enough cake <laughs> and she ran down to, we literally had people lined up down wow. the street around the corner down the block and um, we normally closed at 7 and at 7 o'clock when we were supposed to close Fabian got up from the table and he walked the line and he signed for people in line outside all the way down the street. Oh, wow. It was, it was amazing. It was the most successful signing mm -hmm. that we've ever had. You wow. know? But that just shows you it was, it was just incredible um, how uh, that, 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 was, that beat everything, including Death Superman, all that. We've had, you know, Neil Adams was here. We've mm -hmm. had a lot of local. We have an open-door policy on Wednesdays where if there's a creator who wants to promote their book, in fact, we have one coming up, um, I forget the exact date. Uh, one of the kids that used to come in with his twin um, <laughs> has done his own book, and so he's going to come in. And uh, you know, how cool is that to be able to sell your own comic in the store you grew up buying your comics in? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's just really cool. Um, and the list of people, you know, like you say, Scott Shaw, Sergio. Um, um, we had the, the three Italian uh, guys from the company that make uh, the Geronimo Stilton comics. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, we've had Paige Braddock from the Snoopy Museum and the, and the Schultz Company, and she's the creative uh, uh, director. She does all the hiring, firing, etc. She's, uh, you know, there's. I, I don't want to leave anybody out. I've had <laughs> so many, you know, wonderful. Uh, Stan Sakai recently was here to promote yeah. his relaunch of, of Yosagi. I'm glad to see it's in color. I think I was there for Fl Floyd Norman. Wasn't he there? Yeah. 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 Oh, Floyd. Floyd's become a dear friend. The, yeah. the first African American that Disney ever hired. He's yeah. a Disney legend. He's he's quite the the guy now. He's been all over. He he worked for years. Uh, he worked on the Three Fairy Godmothers, Sleeping mm -hmm. Beauty, with no <laughs> credits. His first credit wasn't until um, um, uh, what was it? It was. Uh, Oh, the Hunchback. Another oh. was his first credit, and he, know you know, Floyd was the one who uh, who worked originally on Jungle Book. It was his idea hmm. that the snake's eyes hypnotize you. <laughs> that whole trust in me, that whole yeah, bit, yeah. that was Floyd's idea, wow, cool. and that's when Walt moved him from uh, animation to story. Cool. And he said, but I wanted to be an animator. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Floyd. And uh, a lot of 
people don't know this, there's a documentary about his life, an animated life. It was on Netflix. I know it's on one of the services. I highly encourage anyone listening to this to uh, to, to search it out. Floyd Norman, an animated life. Um, one of the most interesting aspects of Floyd's um, film career in life is that when the once riots broke out, Floyd had the presence of mind to say, um, you know, every every reporter in L.A. is white and they're not going to get near that place. So he grabbed his camera, which there's an interesting story about the camera, too, because it was the it was the camera that uh, Roy Disney sold to him that they used to shoot the True Life Adventures that oh, wow. he used to see. You know, <laughs> that was the Disney camera that he used to shoot the footage of the Watts ride. Wow. And, uh, any, any, any footage you see, historically, whatever, we wouldn't have any record without Floyd's presence of mind to get down there and shoot that film. Wow. So, yeah, I know, it's just astounding. <laughs> I didn't know all um, that. <laughs> oh, it's, 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 uh, you see, I didn't know any of this stuff either, and you yeah. meet people and you start finding out yeah. that they're more than just a pretty face or a guy with a pencil on his yeah. hand, you know? Well, Floyd's so it's modest. I met him, I met him a couple times, and he goes, oh, shucks, yeah, yeah, I did that, oh, you know? <laughs> it's like, you're a legend, dude. Man. He doesn't blow his own horn. Yeah. And most of these yeah. people are the same way. You know, Sergio, come on. Yeah, uh, same way. Yeah. You know, if you every every business every business has its jerks and mm -hmm. every business has its saints and that's what I I say I'm fortunate. No, it's it's really fun when time after time when people come in. Uh, to, to, to meet a creator and, and they come with me after but he's such a nice guy it's such a nice and I go yeah well we, we know who the nice people are that's why we only invite them you know, <laughs> um, you know we've had the peenies here uh, yeah. uh, we were one of the first stores that sold their original uh, Fantasy Quarterly back when when they first started you know oh wow that's before um, ElfQuest yeah, yeah. That's, wow. that's a ways back I forgot about that I know I mean and I hope none of my friends are listening that have that have signed here that I go what about me for crying yeah, yeah. Um, Hero Bear Mike Kunkel's Hero Bear oh, yeah. he did Shazam for a while with DC he's got a new book coming out uh, we're going to have him as our guest on Free Comic Book Day mm -hmm. and I saw his first sketches for Hero Barrow, so the first person he showed them to. Well, you have a lot of them listed on the website, right? So it's like, yeah, you know, yeah. if people have been yeah, on well, the store. And that's what we're going to go back and do, too, is, is kind of revisit that and say, who do we forget? Who do we leave out? Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, we don't want to, you know, affront anyone, you yeah. know. But uh, uh, it's just a joy to uh, let people come in. We had Jeremy Bullock and Kenny Baker when they were doing their tour for the Men Behind the Mask. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. R2. Yeah, they went to some stores in the Bay Area, and they came here, and just wonderful guys, although trying to understand Kenny Baker was impossible. His accent was so heavy. I mean, they, they were, they were, they were, you know, Jeremy had to translate for him. <laughs> translate his English into English, please. Yeah, into English, please, you know. Uh, well, they were here during the World uh, Soccer, and they, all they wanted to do was go across the street to the pub and watch the game. Yeah. You know? <laughs> switch a little bit uh, because I mentioned the music career and I wanted to talk a bit yeah. about that um, was that in your original plans uh, before the comic store because you did a couple albums I don't know how well they did or if they did anything um, then you know a long time and then he did another album much more recently but uh, what came about on those and what was the genesis of all that 
Well, I started playing in clubs when I was 19. I mean, I, in high school, I had a, a rock band and a folk group and all that stuff, you know. But then when I hit college, I met a guy who was uh, four years older than me, Dennis. And uh, he uh, he had been uh, through the circuit in L.A. and around. And uh, I'll never forget this. My freshman year of college, um, it was finals week, my freshman year of college in 1968. And he said, uh, I got us a job. I said, doing what? <laughs> said, playing music. I said, what? Um, I had never been in a bar. You know, I was 19, you know. <laughs> and uh, so our first job together was uh, in Los Gatos, a uh, place that's now a sports bar called Double D's. Oh, Double yeah. D's. It was called the Grog and Sirloin. Mm -hmm. And uh, we played uh, four hours. In those days, it was standard, nine to one. It didn't matter what day of the week it was. Tuesday, Sunday, Friday, it was nine to one because uh, the bars closed at two, right? <laughs> and uh, we got the uh, amazing sum of 15 bucks each for the four hours that we played. And uh, I thought that was pretty good, you know. Um, and uh, over time, uh, we started, that was my, my second extended family. My comic people were my third extended family. But my first extended family, my, I'm a regular family, and then my first extended family was my music, music family. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to know a lot of people, and one of the... Um, one of the uh, groups that was playing, I, I was playing in Campbell at a place called the Garrett, and I was headlining downstairs. Oh, um, yeah. And there was a trio upstairs. It was Juice Newton um, <laughs> before she became Juice Newton. Yeah. And um, <laughs> we would always sit and talk after a gig, you know, have something to eat. And I remember her saying to me one night, uh, Joe, I'm going to go to L.A., and I'm going to be a star. You ought to come with us. And I looked at her, and I said, Juice, I don't want the lifestyle. Mm. And uh, ten years later, it took her 10 years before she sang Angel of the Morning. Uh, she got through, she went through three albums, etc. but it was her last shot. They told her that if this one didn't go, they were gonna drop her. <laughs> and then, of course, it went. And then mm -hmm. Angel of the Morning, Queen of Hearts, all that kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> and uh, she was playing Tahoe, and I went up there with some friends, all of us musicians from the area, to uh, see her. And after they finished uh, the gig, we were again sitting in the bar, pretty similar situation, and this was like, 3 a.m. or something and uh, this was in February and it was uh, Wednesday night and um, she had been Sunday night at the uh, Santa Rosa County Fair she had been Monday night at the Catalyst in Santa Cruz <laughs> Tuesday they were on the road Wednesday night they were in Tahoe and they were doing this this was February and they were doing it until October and I said, boy, did I make the right choice. <laughs> it did not sound good to me at all. Um, you know, some people like Willie knows those people, they love being on the road. But my choice had always been, you know, I got my... Um, I got my degree in music from San Jose State, mm -hmm. and I really learned to be a musician there. I, I played naturally all my life, but I never studied the discipline, and then um, I really wanted to learn. So that's what I majored in at State. Voice mm -hmm. and I learned how to use my voice so I didn't stretch it or, or ruin it like a lot of my contemporaries did, screeching <laughs> a lot of that stuff. You know, that's why I still have a voice these days. Cool. Um, but I also became a musician. And then, you know, the plan was to maybe teach at some point. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I didn't want to be on the road making a career out of that. It wasn't that I doubted my abilities. It was just that I didn't really see myself uh, doing what that kind of a life required. It's very rare that you can, you know, avoid all that other stuff that goes with it. Mm -hmm. um, so I did an album in 75, 
Um, it didn't. It wasn't received well. I got an audience at Capitol Records, and it just wasn't what they were looking for. And the guy said to me, "But I turned down Jim Croce, so what do I know?" He said, um, <laughs> <laughs> "You know." But um, so then um, in town, I just I wanted to do some other things. I made a second album, which was a lot more successful, mm -hmm. and then um, made a. Uh, a tape, and then I've made a couple of, uh, I made three CDs over the over the time, oh, okay. um, and I just sell those at my gigs. Um, I've got two of them now for sale, and uh, um, my voice changed. I used to be a tenor, and my voice came down, and now I'm a baritone, as you can tell. So you know, I'm very comfortable. My uh, my jobs don't take me more than about uh, 20 miles away from home. Mm -hmm. I know weekly on my regular gigs, but um, I love the music and I love being able to connect with people in much the same way as I do in the store. Mm -hmm. You know, all the things we said about the store apply. People go to a bar. Come on, you can you can buy cheaper food and cheaper booze and eat it at home. Why? Yeah. Where are you going out? You right. know, <laughs> there's a there's a whole sociological dynamic there. Mm -hmm. And uh, when people come into the club. It's not a concert, you know. It's not like they're going to sit there and wrap attention. Uh, sometimes they come in with friends that yeah. they haven't seen in years, and they go, "Oh, let's go listen to some music with Joe and, and have some fun." And last night was one of those nights where I had people who came; they were ready to sing. You weren't going to stop them, <laughs> and uh, they they sang everything under the sun that you can imagine. My girl and um, Ring of Fire, and oh my gosh, you know, when they're going to when they're going to get on the train, you're not going to stop. Hold that that cord and stop them. They're going to go without you, you know, so um, it's a lot of fun, and, and I'm glad that I made this choice. Uh, it's kept me close with my family and, right. my, and my friends, and it allowed me, if I had done more with the music, uh, we wouldn't have been talking about Floyd Norman, you know, right. you know right. or the Peenies, or any of these other people. Right. Now, um, do you have a fixed set every night, or do you just kind of play with the feel, or uh, a little of both? <laughs> That's a great question. It really is, because I used to. I used to set ahead of time. I used to say years ago, I'd say, okay, man, tonight I really feel like singing love songs. And <laughs> inevitably, that's when everybody wanted to sing Brown Eyed Girl and Sweet Caroline. And, um, and just the opposite, if I was ready to really cut loose, and that would be a night people wanted to sit there and listen. So I learned that the only one, the only thing I was doing was setting myself up for disappointment. Because hmm. there was only one successful outcome possible under that scenario. And now, what I've done is I've expanded the number of songs. I'm constantly adding songs, mm -hmm. either new ones or old ones. Um, and uh, I, I now know over 1,400 songs oh, wow. that I can play <laughs> at any time. So that covers a lot of bases. Yeah. And I never said, I never decide. What I will do is I will have ready to go two songs. It's like 49ers script their first 20 plays or whatever, you know, <laughs> and something might throw that in the in the barrel, so you have to, you know, wing it. I will go in and have a couple of songs in mind to start with, mm -hmm. and uh, quite often what happens is I'll uh, I'll visit with some people who uh, I see in the audience, and they'll say, oh, this is my sister from Denver, or um, last night, you know, people who came from Sacramento, uh, and they love early Beatles, or they, they <laughs> love this or that, and boom, right away I say, okay, well, you gave me my opening number. So it does two things. It, it, it really gives them validity. Oh, I'm doing something special for them because I'm mm -hmm. going to play their song first, all that kind of stuff, you know. And then it gets me off and running connected to my audience because any guy can sit there and play. But, you know, when you connect to the audience, that's when you really 
become an entertainer, a performer, and uh, that's basically what happens. So yeah, I, I don't plan more than two songs, and sometimes, I'll be honest with you, I never get to those two songs. <laughs> it's really funny. And I'll work, um, I'll work at, in the afternoon, I go set up early on a Friday, say, and like take tomorrow, I'll take some time and spend a half an hour to an hour, and I'll go through my list of 1,400 and say, is there anything here that I haven't played in a long time? Let's let's find a song that I haven't played in a while. And I'll make up a list of 15 or 20 songs that I haven't played in a while. And I might get to two or three of those hmm. on average, you know, because the, the crowd will take me where they want to go. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of fun. Now, do you have uh, different instruments, or you just have the basic acoustic guitar? What do you generally play? I have an electric acoustic guitar, six-string guitar, okay. and um, I don't use looping. I don't use electronics. I'm a throwback. It's just me and my guitar, mm -hmm. and uh, I will play a variety of styles, and I will play, you know, sometimes I'll pick, sometimes we'll... Last night, one of the fun songs we sang was the King's Lola. <laughs> and, uh, you know, let me just ask you, Mark, if you've been drinking for two hours, is there any way you're not going to sing a Lola? <laughs> you know? Yeah, On key, it doesn't matter. You throw yeah, your exactly. head back and you scream Lola, right? Except I'll probably sing um, Yoda, but that's just me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, you make me feel like a natural woman. Even the guys were singing that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so, when you're drunk, yeah, yes, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, it, it's 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 uh, it's a Pandora's box, really. Right. It is, and uh, yeah. that's the great thing about having. I don't like to uh, I don't like to do too much to slow that that train down because once mm -hmm. everybody's on board, and you know, I don't take a break. I play my gigs straight through without sure. taking a break. Yeah. And people ask me, I go, well, well, why should I take a break? Number one. What am I going to do? Talk to people? Heck, I'm doing I'm doing that from the stage in yeah. between. And when I stop, it, it snaps the string. All of a sudden, people are back to reality. It's like yeah. when you walk out of Disneyland. All of a sudden, oh, there's the bed. Okay. But if I stop and take a break, how many times have you seen somebody say, oh, we're going to take 10 and we'll be right back? And yeah. then 10's a half an hour, for crying out loud. Right. And by the time they come back, it's empty chairs. And all the energy that you yeah. built up and the connection with the audience is gone. Right, no more mom gone. momentum or anything. Yeah, no momentum <laughs> at all. It's very. We've seen momentum in sports. It's the same thing in the club. Last yeah. night I started real quiet, and you know, hour and a half later, the train had left the station. Yeah, and uh, people were on board, and we were having a good time. And mm -hmm. the time went by. And the other thing too, you know, the, the the staff that works there. You know, you've got the, everybody who's working the restaurant, and. Uh, you know, their night goes faster when people are having a good time and people are in a good mood and they tip better, etc., and all that. Um, nothing worse than having somebody who uh, is doing the same songs in the same set, the same routine. You can set your clock by what song the, the guy's playing. And uh, they go to the manager and go, look, dude, you got to do something about this guy. You know, uh, you don't last very long if the if the crew is not on your side. Right. You know, well, I, so you're not just entertaining the audience. Yeah. I think you're safe with 1,400 songs. I don't think you have a repeat. Yeah, it's, uh, every once in a while I find one and I go, oh my God, how come I was, I was driving uh, about six months ago, I was driving and I heard Billy Joel's uh, She's uh, Always a Woman and I thought oh, to yeah. myself, holy cow, how come I haven't learned this song? And I literally went home, I'm sitting in the office working on it. My wife walks in and goes, don't you know that song? And I said, well, not yet. And she said, <laughs> well, get busy for crying out loud. <laughs> How long does it take, speaking of that, how long does it take you to learn a song, typically? It depends. If it's a song from my past that I know the melody, 
Yeah. All I have to do is find out what key it's in and, and get the words. I have a Surface Pro tablet now so that um, uh, I'm not hindered by having to memorize the lyrics. Mm -hmm. um, if it's something that I've known for in the past, um, I'm actually driving today over at uh, 1 o'clock to a 100th birthday, and I'm singing the old Tony Bennett hit, Because of You. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I never had learned it, oh. but I heard the song a million times. Right. So um, it was really a quick learn for me. Other songs that are more complicated, um, more chords, more key changes, stuff like that. It'll take me literally anywhere from 10 minutes to three months. Once when I was working out, uh, uh, comply with no, 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 uh, um, not comply with me. Uh, um, uh, what was it? It was on the side. Fly, fly me to the it moon was, or something? <laughs> no, it was it was come fly with me. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was come fly with me, and. Um, uh, I had been working on it for weeks, and my wife yelled from the other room, I'll sure be glad when you learn that damn thing. <laughs> you know, uh, like Let's Fall in Love or, or something with a jazz, like uh, Moonlight Serenade, something like that. But mm -hmm. standard rock stuff and everything, it'll take me uh, 10 minutes to, to a couple of weeks if it's a more complicated mm -hmm. thing. Do you tend to do any of your originals anymore? I know you wrote a couple, a few on the Yeah, I've got album. about 20 songs. I always tell the audience I'll do us both a favor and I won't sing anything I wrote before I turn 21. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all of that's kind of paying my dues, getting me here, you know. Um, it takes a, a certain kind of a night. Yeah. Uh, I always end my set with an original. Uh, mm -hmm. There are times it's kind of like my signature song. Yeah. And that was the first song that literally I said to myself, okay, now everything has to be at this level. I realized at that point I was able to be uh, self-disciplined enough to, you know, not, not every word that came out of my brain was, was a jewel. You know, you have to get to the point where you can cut and paste and you can figure out, you can be um, self-disciplined enough to recognize when it's good and when it's not. And all songwriters have to be in the process of going through stuff to get to the good stuff. And um, so I, I will pick and choose. Once in a while, somebody will ask for an original. Um, I don't consider myself necessarily a songwriter as much as an interpreter. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got 20, 25 songs that I'll mix in here and there. But well, the real joy for me is when somebody says to me, you know, um, I like how you took that song and made it your own. <laughs> um, yeah. Or that's the first time I've actually listened to the words to that song. I recently learned uh, Lady Gaga's Million Reasons. <laughs> and uh, yeah. and uh, I do it more kind of a pokey, baritone thing, and I slow it down a little and let people listen to the lyric. And, and uh, it's, a, it's still a solid song. I really like the song. Hmm. Um, but I've had people tell me, Oh, you got to learn this with your voice and this and that and everything, you know. And I love it when people suggest, hey, you got to learn that song or this song because yeah. you do a really good job of that. You well, know, I'm sure there's uh, stuff you haven't heard and stuff even now. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. No, they're always telling me about stuff I haven't heard and stuff. But, you know, I learned uh, Bruno Mars. I mean, I learned some newer stuff, too. Yeah. And, uh, That's good. Uh, this is the, um, oh, what's her name, Ingrid Michelson and... Uh, and uh, North Jones and stuff. You have to be able to. Generally speaking, in the in the in the restaurant, yeah. the older crowd comes in earlier, and then from nine to ten, it's usually the younger crowd. Mm. So you know, I've learned some Ed Sheeran and uh, you know some Pink, and cool. um, I even do Cindy Lauper's Time After Time. It's a great song. Mm -hmm. And one guy said, "You know, that's the first time I've heard a man sing that song." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I hear all these things, different people find different ways to say feedback, things like that, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very special. 
It really is. To, and none of that, I mean, uh, when you're standing on stage in an auditorium, you don't get that kind of feedback. You know, you get Twitter, you get social media, people telling you that kind of stuff. But, yeah, there's no substitute for that one-on-one connection. Yeah. And typically the Cats and Shadowbrook are the mainstays for you still? They still are, yeah. Um, you know, I, I um, at this point, I never, never really thought... Um, years ago I, I made the decision that I wasn't really going to try to you know be a star or anything like that <laughs> but um, um, right now I'm fortunate enough that there's still a couple of places that will feature a regular performer uh, yeah. most of the, the clubs the uh, restaurants or bars that have bands and stuff they rotate it and they're they're attracting a lot of dance uh, folks because they're the drinkers and all yeah. that so the old coffee house model and the old sit down and listen to some good music model yeah. um, it's disappearing pretty much right. you still find locations here and there yeah. um, but I'm very happy with uh, this because again it's not taxing you know I'm uh, right. I'm able to, they pay me, they feed me, and I'm at home in bed before midnight. <laughs> so how many gigs can you say that about, you, you know? Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, um, I think we've covered pretty much everything about your two careers, as it were. Um, I guess the the best thing to say is, you know, is there anything you'd like to plug or website or how people get in touch with you? Well, we're currently redesigning our website. That should be ready to go fairly soon. It's a pretty old 80s style website right now. <laughs> um, my email is very easy. It's joe at atlantisfantasyworld.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, always welcome people who... Uh, oh, there is one other thing that I do want to talk about, sure. even just briefly. Because yeah. Um, yeah, you don't think about this when you're younger and all that, but at 55, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer and uh, as a typical baby boomer of my generation I knew absolutely nothing and we all know that women are very um, proactive about seeing a doctor and about taking care of their own health and um, my standard go-to here is show me a 55 year old woman who does not know what a mammogram is impossible Right? right? Show me a 55-year-old man who knows what a PSA test is. <laughs> Almost impossible. Um, and that's the test men use to, uh, to to check for prostate cancer. It's a blood test. Mm-hmm. But um, I won't drag on on this, but um, I am 15 years past a successful prostate cancer surgery, and I've been very active in uh, raising awareness because I realized there was a disconnect mm-hmm. when... Uh, when uh, you know you see so many women talking about it and men knew nothing and i said this is wrong um uh, uh, quite a few of my customers now over the years um over the last 15 years have come to me and said guess what um i've got it too and they come to me because they know i know the right questions to ask i'm part of the support group locally i get involved with that so um what I, I guess what I really want to say is to just tell men, I don't care how old you are, your health is your responsibility. Yeah. And uh, you need to know what you need. Most men don't know what they need to know in regards to the general health. Um, and if you're talking about something going wrong with little Johnny, they don't want to talk about it at all. Right. You know? So uh, it's uh, it's something that more men need to be proactive about. I am uh, not only have I beat that, I beat two other cancers. I had a tongue cancer and an eye cancer. So, oh wow! I never knew that. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's just things happen, and uh, um, you know, luckily, uh, my wife has beat breast cancer. I mean, we're all, you know, on this uh, 
journey and uh, we're all going to have to deal with something at some point uh, if we're lucky we avoid it but um, right. you know um, the, the whole thing is again to just have men be proactive about learning what you need to know right. uh, it's, it's appalling the lack of information yeah. that men have about taking care of their own health. And so. I, I try to do as best I can, especially as I get older now. It doesn't seem like I'm older now, but, you know, it's like, hey. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I say I'm 70, I, what did I sing last night? I sang your song, Elton John's Your Song. <laughs> and uh, everybody was smiling, and they were singing of it, and I said, when I got done, I said, do you know that song is 50 years old? <laughs> and, and they stared at me. I said, 1970, that song is 50 yep. years old. Yep. And they just went, where did those 50 years go? Exactly. Uh, unreal. <laughs> so, yeah, um, there's all kinds of ways that men can get informed. Uh, and if they uh, want to know anything, they can always talk, talk to me. And women, too. We try to get women uh, educated because they'll educate their men, you know, yeah. that whole thing. What do you need to know and then to, to be uh, considered to be proactive about taking care of your own health? So Very good. There you go. <laughs> Any last words of wisdom, or uh, just want to sign off at this point? <laughs> no, I just say, you know, um, the, the old adage, you know, do what you enjoy. You never work a day in your life. All that stuff, you know. Take care of people, and they'll take care of you. Um, anybody who's uh, in this business or who's part of comics or anything, celebrate the, the joy we have of being creative. You know, it's life is a process. It's not about the result. It's not gaining things or acquiring things. It's about doing. Yeah. And the saddest people I know are the people who don't do anything or don't have a passion. I had to learn that, but I learned it yeah. well. <laughs> yeah. So I always, when I meet someone, I never ask them what they do. I, I always ask, what's your passion? Yeah. And some of them are startled. Yeah. Uh, I've never been asked that before. And some of them have an answer right away, and some stand there and stare at me. And it's obvious that they don't have a passion. You right. know? Yeah. So anyway, that's uh, it's been a lot of fun, man. I think. Enjoy talking with you. All right. I thank you very much, Joe, for yeah, being absolutely. a guest on this podcast. And Absolutely. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Joe Ferraro, for being my special guest. Episode number 66 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. of your loot.